0: Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. There's been a lot of talk recently about the condition of America or questions and then attempts to answer them. Like, are we really better off now than at other times in history? Isn't there that article that says that my generation, the Zoomers, are going to be the first to be worse off than our parents? Today on July 7th, 2023, I'm excited to welcome Jeremy Horbedal to figure this out. Jeremy is the director of the Arkansas Center for Research and Economics and an associate professor at the University of Central Arkansas. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Julia. Glad glad to be here.
0: So before we get started, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't?
1: I think for for me as I've become a little bit older. The thing that I found has been very useful that I didn't think before was uh, it's really important to cultivate a good relationship with your parents. Um, and I think there's a number of ways you can you can force yourself to do this. Um, but I think for, for a lot of people, including myself, we found doing a weekly phone call with your parents at a minimum uh, is really helpful. Uh, I think this is something that is useful in a lot of ways. It's something that, though, you do have to work at. I mean, all relationships you have to work at to build them Uh, but this is something I didn't realize when I was, when I was younger, uh, when I was in college, I didn't do that weekly phone call with my parents. Uh, this wasn't something I discovered until a little later in life, but I think, you know, exactly how you build that relationship with your parents will be up to you. But, uh, I think it's really important to build that relationship because you will find as you become an adult, that this is actually one of the most important relationships you have in your life, uh, both for understanding, you know, where you came from and and your background, but also for helping you as you start to go through all the same uh, you know life moments as your parents did. So my one piece of advice to young people is call your parents once a week. I found that Sunday night is a great night to do it. There's usually not any social events on your calendar. It's a great way to end one week and start the next week. Um, and it doesn't have to be you know a whole long thing. Just call them some nights it's five minutes, some weeks might be a half hour, but Cultivate that that relationship with your parents, and I think you will you will find as you get older that this is an extremely valuable and rewarding thing to do for, for both you and your parents.
0: This is great, and it's also such an original, new piece of advice. I, I love asking people this question, but this is kind of the first time in a while where I've been truly... Surprised, serendipitously surprised, if well, I'm using that word correctly. Also, start, um, sa-
1: start saving when you're young. There's another piece, right? But no, I'm sure you've heard yeah. that one before, but yeah. Uh, yep.
0: We've done whole interviews <laughs> on that one, but, you know, I still struggle, so it's good to be reminded. Um, it's easy to spend when there are a lot of things you like in the yeah. world. Um, so let's jump in. You and AEI's Scott Winship recently wrote a report at the American Enterprise Institute called the cost of thriving has fallen correcting and rejecting the American compass cost of thriving index. It's kind of a mouthful of a title, but it encapsulates (laughs) a lot. Um, can you first place this paper in the current debate that's taking place on the right? And can you also tell us what the cost of thriving index is and what it measures?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So (laughs) as you said, there's a lot to, to get into here, but, um, The the Cost of Thriving Index is a measure that was produced by Orrin Cass at uh, the American Compass think tank. Uh, It's an attempt to look at uh, how people are doing today compared to 1985. And as you said, looking back at the, I was looking back at the past. When do you start? uh, Why he started in 1985? uh, I think that's just based on the data availability for what he wanted to look at. It's also kind of roughly one generation, Um, so we're kind of taking that as given. But he produced this index. Uh, from 1985 to 2022 and what his index the kind of headline result of that is that uh, for five measures of things that people would want to buy things like healthcare, education transportation food um, that the cost of those goods according to the cat the index that orrin cass has produced it is impossible for the median male worker to buy those today uh, in other words uh, you would have to work 62 weeks in a year to buy them. And of course, as we all know, there are not 62 weeks in a the year. There are only 52. Uh, and Oren Cass says that today it's impossible to, to buy these five goods at the median male salary. Um, but in 1985, you could buy them. In fact, it would have taken uh about uh 40, 40 weeks of work, four-zero. So 40 weeks of work to buy these in 1985, and today. 62 weeks for the median male earner um and meeting of course that is impossible today and it's gone up quite substantially uh, you know that's a 50 percent increase or so since 1985 in the cost of what he calls thriving um so uh, you know this this index he puts out you know just to contextualize it comes in among this debate about you know is this generation better off than the last one are wages keeping up with inflation Are wages keeping up with other measures of price increases? And there have been lots of papers that have tried to look at this, lots of different ways of trying to measure it. Um, One of the big things that he does that's different from a lot of other papers is instead of using a standard inflation adjustment, which I'm sure you've talked about on the podcast before, uh, he says, let's not do that. Let's just look at the actual prices of the goods in 1985. And these are food, transportation, housing, healthcare, and education. Let's look at the actual cost of those in 1985, see how many work weeks it takes the median mail to buy them. And then let's look at the actual price of them in 2022 and see how many weeks it takes to buy them. So then we don't need to do any inflation adjustment. Doesn't matter to do use the CPI, to use the PCE, to use whatever else. It doesn't matter because we're looking at the number of weeks. I actually do like this approach in, in a number of ways. I, I use this uh, time to buy things in a number of uh, other analyses that I've done. So I don't think that that part of it is necessarily wrong. Um, but I think there are a lot of problems with it, as you mentioned in the mouthful of a title we have. Uh, we think that there's a lot of corrections that need to be made. And I think there is also a fundamental problem with the approach he's taken, even if I think there is uh, there is a lot of value to what he did and looking at this way. But I think ultimately he's wrong. And in our paper, we show again, our headline result is that actually you can a me- the median worker today could purchase these. It takes about 45 weeks of work. And that's actually slightly less than it was in 1985. Uh, we, w- After making our corrections, we found it's fallen by about one week worth of work at the median. Um, and that's not accounting for any sort of quality improvements. In, in the index, Gorncast says, I want to ignore those. Those are important, that, that goods are better, that houses are bigger. Uh, but still, you have to buy what exists today, right? You can't go back and buy the lower quality goods from 1985 because those maybe just don't exist. Uh, you have to buy the houses that are available today. You have to buy the healthcare that's available today. So the quality adjustments, he says, for the purposes of this index, we're going to ignore them and say, you know, you want to buy a minivan today versus a minivan in 1985. Well, that minivan's a lot nicer today, but maybe if you can't afford it, that's not so great, right? Maybe you would like a a one that doesn't have all the fancy features that it has today, uh, because if you if you really truly could not afford it. Uh, if the median worker cannot afford it, that's really bad. That means for someone who's below the median, of course, it's even harder. Um, so that's kind of where this fits into this debate. And th- those are the the headlines of what, what he says and what we say. I've already thrown a bit of numbers at you. So I think for readers, it might be helpful to, to pull up the paper that we've written while you're listening to this, if you're not jogging or whatever, uh, but to see all the data. But you know, he says there's been about a 50% increase in the cost of thriving uh, over this time period, We say it's actually fallen slightly, uh, uh, even without doing any sort of quality adjustment.
0: And we're going to get into inflation adjustment and all of the different adjustments that you made and in final, the rejection. But first, I kind of want to get at this question of like, what is the cost of thriving? (laughs) I know I haven't been around that long, especially in the think tank academic econ space, but I have never heard of that. Like, what is this notion? Is it new? Is it replacing something else? Is it something we should have?
1: Yeah, so, you know, he's, of course, Warren Kass is, is trying to have a different approach, so he's got to give it a new name. And uh, cost of thriving, you know, the closest thing that he's kind of playing on here would be the cost of living, right? This is a phrase that you've probably heard many times. It's used in the popular press. You know, what's the cost of living? How does that compare to the past? But, you know, the thriving, the reason I believe he's using that word is he says, well, we don't just want people to live. That sounds just like you're getting by. You're barely alive, right? You're not dead. We want people to thrive. We want people to do well. And to thrive, he would say that, first of all, you should be able to buy these five core basic things. Uh, and also, it shouldn't consume all of your income, right? Because you want some of your income to go to other things, the the pleasures of life, right? So uh, for people to truly thrive, uh, we need to have uh, the, you know, be, we need to be able to buy these things, uh, these these basic goods and services, um, and and then not spend all of their income doing that. Also, kind of built into this is uh, throughout his index, he just uses uh, median male earners. So that's going to eliminate the possibility of dual income households. Uh, he, you know, I think what a lot of conservatives and, and many on the, on the left as well are concerned about or or think might be true is that today you need a dual income household to support a family, right? And you would say, and they might say, well, that's not really thriving if that's an, if that's necessary. I think most would say, well, that's great if a family wants to have a dual income, uh, and, and, you know, then have more money to spend on lots of things. But if you can't even support a family with one income, you know, that's a problem. And maybe we should try to address that with public policy. So thriving, you know, in this index is an attempt to, you know, put a new spin on, on an old idea, the cost of living, uh, but to, to, to think about it in a way that, uh, is, uh, unique and um and and may add something to this this debate which has been ongoing for a long time
0: so okay so uh, this is maybe a silly question <laughs> what do you refer to it as in passing is it the is it the coty koti I call
1: it koti C O T I just that's Koti but um <laughs> I, I guess I should I think that's how he refers to it orn Cass who created it so so I just go with that Uh, Or the uh,
0: CAS index.
1: Yeah, CAS index. (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, we we, we debated, is it, uh, you know, is it COT? Is it the COT index? Is it the COTI? I mean, it's just, you know, all on paper, right? Like how do you pronounce someone's name (laughs) if you're just reading it? But, you know, that's when when I refer to it, you know, on audio, uh, COTI is how I call it. But, you
0: know,
1: whatever you want. My (laughs) biggest
0: irrational fear is (laughs) pronouncing things wrong, Um, as I mentioned to you earlier. Okay. So I kind of want to look at this broader question that I'm starting to kind of understand learning a lot about economics and kind of dealing with the policy implications of the way the economy is doing and how people care about that and gauge that. But for people who aren't as like deep in the econ, why on earth are economists so obsessed with indices? Why are indexes indices? I don't know. I feel like indexes makes more sense to me, but I know that that's wrong. Uh, I don't know. Like, why is it so important? Why is that the method?
1: So. For, for a lot of things, we're trying to you know measure things over very long periods of time um, and, and developing an index that tries to consistently measure something over time is something that economists spend a long time doing, uh, particularly for the 20th century, there's a book, I forget the authors, uh, but they, they wrote it a couple of years ago, and they, they titled it The First Measured Century. And it was about kind of the economic history of the 20th century, right? We have all this data, right? People have been collecting data since we have, you know, as far back as we have writing. But, you know, the 20th century is the first century when about lots of things, economic things, health things, education. We tried to measure things. But if you want to compare, you know, have things gotten better over time? How much better have they got? You need some sort of index to consistently measure something over time, um, and you know what goes into that index. Of course, as we're talking about this specific one here, you know what goes into that is going to, in some ways, drive your results. Which is why you want to, you know, carefully explain to people how you constructed it, and then other economists or other researchers can either, you know, accept or reject your index. Uh, but that is what we're, you know, trying to do. So the the most common one, which you know, your listeners are probably very familiar with is GDP, gross domestic product. Uh, you know, officially this is not, we don't start measuring this until the 1930s. Uh, but economists have then constructed indexes which go back before that, right? So let are say, well, what if we were measuring this in not just 1929, but 1829? You know, can we develop an index which consistently measures this over time? And as with anything in in academia there are there are a few people that like specialize in this and dedicate their life to making that measure as good as possible um then you know for the United States there is kind of a consistent index for gross domestic product that goes back to seventeen ninety an annual index that goes back to seventeen ninety uh that we can then say you know roughly today gross domestic product per person adjusted for inflation because we got an inflation index that goes back to. Gross domestic product per person adjusted for inflation today is about 20 times higher than at the start of this country, right? 20 times, two zero, not 20%, 20 times greater. Uh, we can only say something like that if we have these indexes an index for gross domestic product, an index for uh, inflation adjustments, and of course, an index for population. But population, we actually have fairly good data going back to 1790. Uh, so by Developing these indexes, we hope we can say something about the past. And then as we zoom forward, though, to the you know, last 40 years or so, we want to say then, okay, we can definitely say we're way better off than 1790, but are we better off than 1985? Uh, you know, We need some sort of index to measure that. If you use a standard measure like gross domestic product per capita adjusted for inflation, we're a lot better off. It's maybe double or so uh, what it was in 1985. Uh, if you look at something like even median family income. This hasn't doubled since 1985, but it's up about 30 uh, percent. Even if you look at median family income for families with just one earner, that is also up about 20 percent since 1985. Uh, so lots of measures suggest we're better off than 1985. How much better off? Well, it depends on the index that you want to use. But uh, his index is is one of the kind of major ones that has come out saying that we're not better off so we develop these indexes to try to understand the past uh, but also to think about carefully you know public policy is public policy supporting this growth is it public policy hindering it does public policy not matter in some cases uh that that's another thing we're trying to do with these indexes and then we need you know an index to measure public policy so we have measure indexes that measure things like economic freedom there are several indexes which measure those things uh, because, you know, when we say policy, right, you've, you've talked about public policy a lot in your podcast, but how do we quantify that, right? How do we compare that across time? How do we compare that across countries? We need some sort of consistent way to measure it. And that's what economists call an index.
0: I like that. That I, You've made it make a lot more sense. <laughs>
1: well, good. <laughs> I don't know
0: why this is not more in the forefront of teaching about economics <laughs> personally. Maybe that's just my personal take. Um You've kind of mentioned some of these stats about how we're doing compared to Koti, Kati. I still can't do it. Uh, (laughs) um, But what are the other major indices we use and how do they compare? Making Mm -hmm. this comparison more clear, I guess.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the most common measure to use, because it's readily available every year for every country, is gross domestic product per capita. That has a lot of good features to it. Uh, It's also not the only one we want to use. First of all, it's an average. So, uh, as as you know, a median in some cases might be better, or at least you know some indication of of the distribution. Right, an average can be pulled up by outliers. Can also be pulled down by outliers, but it's more likely to be pulled up. Um, So, various measures of median earnings. So we have median hourly wages. We have median weekly wages. That's the one that's used in, in Kotai, median weekly wages. Uh, we have median household income, median family income. And we might might start to say, well, what's the difference between a household and a family? Right. Uh we can get into that a little bit, but the, the basic difference is that a family is a group of people living together that are related, and a household is a group of people living together, whether they're related or not. Uh, including a household could be just one person. A family in the way it's defined by the Census Bureau it cannot just be one person. Uh, so we have these kind of different measures which sound the same in, in casual conversation. you might you know interchangeably refer to uh, you know families and households or you know wages and income. but there are lots of different ways we try to get at this. Uh, if you go back to 1985 and you use most of the standard measures of inflation, uh, all of these measures were higher than they were in 1985. Uh, some show more growth than others. But um, it's hard to find an index uh, up until this one came out that suggested that families are worse off, especially as he says being, you know, fifty six percent worse off than uh, nineteen eighty five. That's a that's a big number,
0: especially because we have Netflix nowadays. I'm sorry, that's yeah, <laughs> a big deal for me. Right? Uh. No,
1: no. But what what he would say though, or in Cass, I, I think I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think what he would say is that well. Yes, but now families feel like they need to buy Netflix, right? Uh, family in 1985 wouldn't have felt like they needed to buy Netflix because it didn't exist. And that just makes it harder today for, you know, parents to support a family because their kids want Netflix and their kids want a cell phone and their kids want the minivan with, you know, with the heated seats. And like, you know, they want they want the things. And, you know, that's a reality for parents. And, you know, part of parenting is trying to tell your kids no sometimes. But, you know, the fact that we have all these things, you know, you know, Oren again. Don't put words in his mouth. But he has clearly said that, yes, the standard of living is better today. We have better stuff. uh, It's higher quality. uh, But what he says is, but also it is harder to buy it for for a single uh, earner family. Uh, So, yes, I think he would agree. Netflix is great uh, uh, that it's great that we have these things. uh, But, you know, a cell phone. Right. Think about a cell phone. Uh, At some point in history, it didn't exist at another point in history, it was kind of a luxury. Now it is somewhat of a necessity, right? If if you want to get a job, hold a job, you know, be in communication with friends, it's it's almost a necessity today. Uh, so that's the you know, that's not in the index that he has produced, but he would say that, you know, you need some extra income to buy these these things, which are becoming necessities. And that's just harder and harder to do.
0: But there's also stuff like, Flying cars, where when Back to the Future <laughs> came out, we all wanted a flying car. And you know, we don't have them still. And most people I don't I don't know. I don't think about it super often. But I would say if I had the choice to have a flying car, I would probably want one. Or at least I mean, want the option. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I don't know. It just seems almost like a little bit of a superfluous argument where it's like, well, I, I want it because now I can have it. Well, hypothetically if it existed you wanted it when it didn't I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Um
1: <laughs> no but, that does make sense. And you know and you know flying cars and cell phones are not in his index. But you know I think he would say that, you know, for the the best, you know, whatever the the best technology is today, people feel like they need it. In many cases you can't go buy the old one, right? Um so you can't you can't go buy, you know Uh, In many cases, people talk about in housing, the missing middle, right? If you've heard of this concept, the missing middle Mm -hmm. is, you know, the types of houses that families might've bought in 1985 or 1965, you know, the size of those houses, is just not available. In many cases, that's due to zoning regulations and other other policy measures. But, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, houses are bigger today, but if you want to buy a new house or a rough or a, a new house that's been built in the last 20 or 30 years, the size of houses you might want—they're all bigger than a lot of people want. So, um, some places, some cities, and counties are trying to address that by modifying their zoning rules. Um, but you know, he would say that yeah, it's great that houses are bigger, but wouldn't it be nice if there was an option for a more modestly sized house? And to that, I would agree. I, I wish there were more options, but uh, I think that yeah, you, you do need to say the houses are bigger. Of course, they're going to cost more, and so. We would argue, Scott Winship and I, that you need to address that in some way.
0: Yeah, I I do. Yeah, no, this is a good point. Um, Something that I just started thinking about is that, I mean, it's been a thought that I've been having, is that as as a young woman that's entering the labor force, um, I'm kind of baffled by the current obsession about, the state of male workers and Mm -hmm. the idea that the American dream is achieved by having a full-time male worker supporting the family. And I know there are like, there are alarming stats about male workforce participation and deaths of despair and awful things like that. But I would think that we've moved past this idea of the American dream being dependent on a one income earning household and that that income earner will be a man. Um, obviously, if that's your choice, right. I respect that. And I think you should be able to have that. But I guess, why is that the focus of Kati Koti?
1: Well, I mean, that is a great question. And that is a question that we, we push on in the paper. So one of the additional corrections, in addition to correcting the data, which maybe we'll get into a little bit, but um, is we say, well, you got to include women, too. Um, and you got to include those median female earnings. Now, we're still saying just look at just a single earner family, but uh, you got to look at how much women's earnings have increased because they've actually increased a lot more than men have since 1985 because they started from a lower level. Um, so that that is one of the corrections we make in the index is to include both male and female workers, as well as to include he he only ha- includes workers 25 and older. We say you got to include all workers as long as they're a full-time worker right because there are some you know 18 year olds supporting a family um you got to include them too so we one of the corrections we make uh and it's and this is agreeing with you that we should be thinking more broadly than just about about male workers is we include uh all workers that are full-time workers both men and women young old uh as long as they're a full-time worker we include their wages in our calculation but I think your your question broadly is very, is, is very good. There, there are a lot of concerns, I think, about about male workers, but it does seem to get a lot of coverage. Uh, today, as we're recording this on, on July 7th, 2023, the Bureau of Labor Statistics just released the latest monthly update to employment data. And today, the employment to population ratio for working age women is the highest it's ever been in U.S. history today. Of course, it's been increasing throughout the 20th century, but it kind of leveled off uh, about 20 years ago. But lately, it's been increasing again, and so it's the highest it's ever been. We have more working-age women—that's 25 to 54—more working than ever before. Now, for men, it has fallen since uh, 1985, or you know, it's been falling actually for longer than that. Um, and so, for men, it's it's not at a historic high, uh, and I think there is there are reasons to be concerned about that. But I think that. A lot of what's happened is that women have now, thanks to both social and political changes, have been able to work full-time and earn a good living and work in the same types of jobs that that men traditionally used to hold. And so that means that some families choose to have the woman be the only worker. Uh, Some families, you know, choose to have the man go back to college, right? So they won't be in the labor force for a period of time. So the decline of the American male worker is... You know, something which gets a lot of press, uh, it's been studied a lot, and I think there are a lot of concerns. You mentioned deaths of despair, right? That that primarily hits men of working age. Um, so there are a lot of concerns, but, but I do agree with you that, you know, we got to consider women in this picture, uh, especially since there are a lot of, you know, women supporting families, either as single mothers or as, you know, married couples where only the woman is working. And uh, we need to include that in the analysis, and we try to include that uh, by by broadening the set of workers that we look at.
0: So this is one of the things that you and Winship take into account. Um, what, what else um, is kind of inaccurate or outdated or wrong about the way that COTI works? You mentioned the ignorance of inflation adjustments. Could you kind of explain that? in a little bit more depth, possibly in a way that listeners who aren't versed in the absolutely fascinating measurement debate will understand?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some like technical things we do, but let me let me give you a few examples that we think are, are just clear errors that need to be corrected. So number one is healthcare costs. So yes, healthcare costs have increased a lot since 1985. I think we all know this. We also know that healthcare is a lot better. Uh, a lot of the uh, procedures that were available and that are available today a lot of the drugs available today just didn't exist in 1985 um uh you know my my brother recently got a double lung transplant uh he was born in 1986 uh, uh that procedure was developed in 1986. the first successful double lung transplant was the year he was born. if he'd been born a generation before, that procedure was just not available. So um, you know, healthcare is a lot better and more expensive. Okay. So, but how do we measure it? Right. Because you got to buy it. You got to, you can't buy the healthcare of 1985. You got to buy the healthcare of today. Uh, one of the er- major errors we think that he makes, Orrin Cass, in his report, is he includes the full cost of healthcare, including the part that your employer pays, right? So for most people, the way you get your health insurance is you get through your employer, you pay a part of it, and your employer pays a part of it. He's subtracting both of those from your wages. But the part your employer pays, it doesn't come out of your wages. It may affect your wages, right? If your employer is paying you healthcare, they may not pay you as high wages as if they weren't giving it to you. I think there's strong evidence of that. But we shouldn't additionally subtract it from the wages, right? Uh this is not something that when you get your paycheck every week, they don't subtract the part that they pay, right? That's that's already baked into your wage. So we say that he's kind of essentially cuz for most people kind of it's a 50-50 split for your employer roughly um he's kind of essentially doubling the cost of healthcare right uh and and that means not only does it look higher and more expensive today uh, uh in his calculation but that means he's dramatically overstating how much it has increased over time um, so the number of you know like he likes to put it in this index in terms of how many weeks would it take to buy these various things uh there's a dramatic overstatement of how many weeks it would take uh, uh of earnings to buy your annual healthcare costs. Again, healthcare is expensive. It has gotten more expensive over time, but uh by by making that one correction, that that causes a big change. So we say, yes, you got to include healthcare, you gotta include what it costs today, but you can't you shouldn't also subtract what the em- employer pays. Like that just didn't make sense to us uh, uh why he was doing that. Another one. Uh, education uh, for anyone who uh, what he uses in the index is the cost of uh, public four-year college uh, uses the average cost for public four-year college. uh, And then looks at, you know, saving for that over a number of years. Uh, uh, What he does, the error though, there is that for anyone who has looked at college or gone to college lately knows uh, the, what we call the sticker price, the list price of college, virtually no one pays that, right? The list price of college before, you know scholarships pell grants institutional aid all these other things that subtract and and reduce the cost of higher education we understand this is a very complicated thing if you are shopping for colleges to know what's going to actually cost but if we look at what it does actually cost and we look at what's called the net price that is after subtracting all the aid students get on average and we do that for both 1985 and 2022 we also find he has dramatically overstated uh, the increase in the cost of getting a college education. Um, so that is, again, college is expensive. Uh, you're in college, you know that. Uh, the price of college has gone up a lot, but by not accounting for all the aid that's available today, and we're not talking about student loans, we're talking about actual aid that reduces the price of college for you. Uh, when you include that, uh, there, there's it's much lower than it looks like if you just include uh, the list price. I'll give you one more example of something in this case, which he doesn't include at all, but we really think he should have. And that is the cost of taxes, right? So taxes, of course, are a very important part of you thinking about the things that come out of your paycheck. Healthcare comes out, but taxes come out too, right? So uh, we got to look at how much taxes are. So we say, well, in some sense, maybe you didn't take out enough stuff, right? Maybe it actually takes more weeks to thrive because what's the cost of taxes, But a very important part of the picture for taxes from 1985 to 2022 is that the taxes that a middle-income family with children pays, those taxes actually have gone down a lot since 1985. I think a lot of people might not realize this, but there have been a number of major tax changes since 1985. There's a big tax reform in 1986, which lowers tax rates. But the biggest thing actually driving this all is there's something today called the Child Tax Credit which if you don't have kids or you don't study this, you probably have never heard of. Uh, But uh, if you do have kids, you very much know about this. This is a $2,000 per year credit uh, that families with children get. So for a family uh, with uh, uh, two children, that's $4,000 every year that the federal government gives them. Now, I think it's useful to debate how effective is this? Is that the best use of taxpayer money? And so on and so forth. And there's a lot of debate about this. But we say you got to include this. This credit did not exist in 1985. If we're talking about public policy that will help families, it does exist today. And this greatly lowers the cost of taxes. Uh, It's actually pretty dramatic if you look at the dollar. So for the median male earner, the wage that that he wants to use uh, with two kids, a married median male earner with two kids in 1985, they paid thirty seven hundred dollars in taxes in twenty twenty two they paid the exact, almost the exact same amount, $3,700. They might say, oh, well, that's the same. But no, as a percent of their income, that's way lower. I haven't adjusted that number for anything. It's $3,700 in both years, federal taxes, including payroll taxes and federal income taxes. Uh, taxes are, they they kind of froze them essentially. I mean, they didn't really do that, but it ended up working out that way that, that, that they did that. So Cass doesn't include this at all in his index. It's a big change. That tax That $3,700 was a lot of money to someone in 1985. Uh, So you got to include that. And so one of our corrections that we say you got to include this is taxes. And he actually has, I mean, we've talked with him about this a number of times, but uh, uh, he has said, yeah, he has admitted this. I I made an error there in our next version of the index. We will include a tax calculation. So this is how this academic conversation uh, can hopefully make these indexes better uh, as people put them out to the world and get feedback. And, uh, and hopefully make the next version better.
0: That's awesome. Um, another problem, though, with the original Kati, I'm going with it now, hmm. is that um, there was cherry picking of items that have become more expensive over time. So can you give us some examples of where that's the case?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, the items are food, transportation, housing, healthcare, and education. If you look at and there are lots of nice charts you can find online. In this, if you look at what categories of prices since you know 1980 or 2000 have gone up, <clears throat> the big ones are things like housing, healthcare, and education. These things have gone up a lot, and people know it. And people feel it. Uh, food and transportation haven't gone up as much, but those are a smaller part of of the index today that he's produced uh, than than the other items. Uh, Housing and healthcare are by far the biggest, constituting over half of the cost that he's looking at. Uh, He's only, not only, but he's primarily including the cost of things that have gone up. The nice thing about something like the consumer price index, which is a measure of inflation, the most commonly used one, the nice thing about it is it includes everything. It includes the things that have gone up and includes the things that have gone down, right? So by narrowing in on these five items, which it sounds good, I mean, they sound like these are the things that people need to live, right? By only including primarily items that have gone up in price, he's ignoring the things that have gotten cheaper, right? So, and what has gotten cheaper? Well, the things that primarily have gotten cheaper are goods, right? Consumer goods. So he's included food and transportation, but all the other goods, you know, uh, you know, uh, electronics, household items, clothing, right? Think clothing's a necessity. You'd have, you should have at least included that. So by not including all these goods, which have gotten a lot cheaper since 1985, some of them even cheaper in nominal terms. Like a TV today, in nominal terms, is cheaper than 1985. Uh, you know, If you look at kind of entry-level, base model TV that a middle-class family might buy, they're actually cheaper than 1985, right? Now people say, oh, yeah, TVs are cheaper, but healthcare is more expensive. Well, yes, but the point of the CPI is you include them all, right? You include all the things that people buy. You weight them for what percent of the average family's income goes to these things, And that's why economists like these things, the consumer price index or other things like there's something called the personal consumption expenditures price index. That's another commonly used one. But, you know, and there's some differences in them, but the key here is we're going to include all the things people buy, not just five things we've selected because it sounds like, well, it sounds like these are the important things to buy in life. Um, so I think that is kind of a a fundamental problem with the index. And, And, you know, in our paper, we not only, do the correcting of what we think his index should be. So change the numbers where they're wrong or where we think they're wrong. But also we ultimately kind of reject this approach of, of just focusing on these five goods uh, because if you only focus on the things that get more expensive, well, ta-da, it looks like life's gotten harder. It looks like it's gotten harder to support a family, but you got to include the things that have gotten cheaper uh, and, and, you know, and then get, take get the full picture of what's going on.
0: But it's also, um, And I know I dropped the ball on this earlier. I was a little preoccupied with this kind of more existential question in my mind of like, what do they think about me as a woman and where my job (laughs) is going to go? And that, it does worry me a little bit the way that that narrative goes. Um, So I jumped ahead to that thought. But (laughs) on the question of housing, um, it has gotten more expensive. And obviously there's this question of the missing middle. But what we forget is, quality, and especially if Cody doesn't take into account quality changes, then I guess what are we taking for granted? You know?
1: Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, other ways to look at this. So other people taking a similar approach, I've done this too for housing and said, okay, let's look at the, you know, cost to buy a square foot of housing, right? Adjust it for square footage as well, because houses are you know they're not twice as big as 1985 but they're they're maybe almost a thousand square feet bigger at the median house so like that's a lot bigger um so if you look at you know cost and look at you know hourly wage or weekly wage how many weeks of work does it take to buy a square foot of housing that's actually pretty consistent over time so uh one of the things is has gotten bigger they also have a lot more features right so um you know it's very you know it would be, be highly unusual today to build a house without air conditioning uh, I mean, it would be extremely unusual, especially if you're in the south. But I mean, really anywhere in the country. In 1985, they were still building houses that didn't have air conditioning, um, and you know, some people you know got it after the fact, right? But that's something additionally you have to pay. So if we're looking at the cost of housing today, you have to look at what amenities are you getting with that, right? What does the house include? How big is it? Uh, does it have air conditioning? Does it have a attached garage? you know all these sorts of things that we might take for granted today, right? You're not going to build a house today without air conditioning in a garage. And you're not going to build a house that's a thousand square feet, and maybe in some sense we might wish that that you know if some of that is due to like zoning laws, we might wish that you know someone did have the option to do that uh uh you know to build it but um you know we have to take account of the fact that houses just have a lot more things than they did in the past, and if you if you want to try to ignore that, you're missing a big part of what it means for people's lives to get better. Uh, you know, Part of what it means for someone's lives to get better is, OK, even if, let's say, wages were totally stagnant over the course of all American history, right, adjusted for inflation like they haven't gone up one bit. That's not true. But let's say that were true. If everything was better, though, right, if the food is higher quality, if the cars had airbags, if the houses were twice as big, we might say, yeah, we're better off. Even though, you know, adjusted for inflation, it looks like we're not better off. The quality of of goods and services, I mean, my goodness, services, healthcare, personal services, uh, these are much better than in the past. And to to kind of ignore those, we say, is a you know, a is a is a category error, right? It is is just a ignoring what we're trying to do when we think about improvements in people's quality of life and standard of living. Um, If people couldn't actually buy that, you know, if if that were true, that would be a concern, right? If everything was just so good that no one could afford it, uh, that would be a concern. Uh, That that is not the case, as we've tried to show the paper.
0: And uh, something I think about with the fact that these things are more expensive, some of these things that Koti looks at um, is, I guess, what needs to happen to make it decrease if that's what they want. If they want the cost of thriving to decrease, what needs to happen for those things like housing yeah. to become more affordable?
1: Yeah, because we don't want what has to happen is they have to get worse in quality, right? We don't we don't want them to get worse in quality other than perhaps we might like them to be smaller. But I think, you know, I mentioned a few times zoning and other land use reforms. This has been kind of an off the radar thing that, you know, was a niche academic thing that a few people studied uh you know 10 20 years ago um but zoning laws now with where a lot of cities are at in terms of how much they've grown uh, is really putting price pressure on a lot of housing in a lot of areas it used to just be like oh California housings expensive can't build houses in California can't build apartment buildings now it's 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 spreading to you know almost every you know mid-sized major city has has this being a problem right that people want houses of a certain size and quality. But if you want to be near to a city center, uh, there's only so many, you know, locations that are near that, right? And so traditionally, the way you have more people close to a city center is you have density, right? You have taller buildings, you have smaller lots, you have, you know, uh, apartment buildings, you have, you know, less space available for cars, right? You might have mass transportation, uh, due to zoning laws, which were put into effect really 100 years ago, we're just now in the last 40 years, and especially in the last decade, really starting to see the effect of those. So on housing, we might say that one of the things that you need to do is to uh, you know, relax some of those laws, right? I mean, I mean some might say just junk zoning altogether <laughs> and start over. Uh, but certainly relax some of those to allow for more dense housing, uh, which would allow more people to live in the places uh, that uh, they they want to live at a price they're able to afford, right? You know, I live in Arkansas. You know, I can't tell you the number of people. It's all anecdotal, right? I hate anecdotes, but I also love them. The number of people that, that have moved to Arkansas from places like California recently, because they said it's just so unaffordable there, and at least I can sell my house and I can come to Arkansas and I can buy a house, you know, for for cash and still have a lot left over, but as lots of people leave California and people leave Oregon and people live, leave New York City, that starts putting price pressure everywhere, and we're really starting to see that in a lot of places that uh, the the price of housing is increasing everywhere. So that's one reform I would uh, I would su- I would suggest, and I think one reform that probably Orrin Cass would be um, amenable to as well. And if you think about education, that's another big one. Uh, you know, that is the field that I'm in. Of course, I'm in, in the in the business of of educating and, and trying to convince people to come to college. Uh, but I think there are a number of things we can do on education to reduce costs. I think, you know, if you look at a modern university today, it includes uh, a lot of amenities that a college wouldn't have included in 1985. You know, the, the dorms are much nicer. Uh, the food is better. All this is is a big part of the cost of college. But even ignoring housing and food. Like the cost of tuition has gone up too. Um, a lot of that, though, is because education is kind of a, a weird business, and that most of the money goes out to pay salaries. So, the, really, the way to reduce the cost of uh, uh, higher education is is to either reduce the number of employees at a university or reduce how much you're paying them. Uh, this is a challenge, but I think it's something that a lot of universities are starting to look at uh, because uh, I don't know if you've talked about this before in the podcast, talking about education policy, but over the next 15 years there's going to be a huge shrinking in the number of 18 uh, year olds in the country uh, that's just due to the fact that there were fewer people born you know 18 years ago uh, so every college in the country is is thinking about this you know do we have too many employees did we build too many dorms you know when when student populations were high so i don't know if there's a public policy fix to education but i think a lot of universities are now seriously looking at at this you know how can we reduce our costs and how can we then Pass that on to students uh, because it is a competitive industry. There are almost four thousand colleges and universities in the U.S., and uh, you can you can pick and choose wherever you want to go. So it's pretty competitive, and I think hopefully we'll see that level off. Uh, You know, healthcare is a big one. How do we get healthcare costs down? It's a great question. Again, in some sense, we don't we don't want to because uh, we do want um, (laughs) we do want all the modern drugs and we do want all the modern procedures, Uh, but. Again, for for healthcare, just like education, a lot of the cost is in uh, salaries that you're paying people, and a lot of those uh, I'm going to have physicians banging on my door after I say this again. I was whenever I say this, <laughs> but physicians are just paid way too much in this country. If you look at our peer nations, uh, even high income ones with, with with expensive healthcare, they just pay doctors a lot less, and and the doctors will say, "But it's so expensive to go to medical school, and you need this money to pay off your medical school debt." uh all that is due to much like housing it's due to supply restrictions so there's restrictions on the number of people that can get residency slots that are set essentially by public policy there are restrictions on building new medical schools um there's lots of things that are that are constraining the supply of doctors much like there are things constraining the supply of housing and so loosening some of those restrictions to get not only more doctors but more you know nurses more you know medical technicians uh you know Again, we don't want to. We're not going to cut doctors' wages by fifty percent overnight. But if we can slow the growth of those wages over time, uh, in ways in which it's still affordable to be a doctor, right? In which, in which case, medical school gets cheaper and, and things like that. Uh, you know, focusing on how do we reduce the salaries, and to the extent it is, you know, Congress that is setting the number of residency slots. You know, in, in a sense, they are. Uh, you have to do it, and Congress funds them. Uh, that's something, uh, you know, I think would be, if you haven't done it yet, talk to someone who's an expert on that. Uh, I think that's, a, that's a huge thing because it's such a huge part of what people spend money on. And it's such a huge part of what the government spends money on, uh, healthcare is that, you know, reducing those costs. The real big thing you have to do is, is, uh, from what I've looked at in the data is you just have to slow down the growth of salaries in healthcare.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I have talked to Michael Cannon, Mm -hmm. go check that out, um, multiple times about the different ways that our healthcare system works and how they're all like fighting against each other to make this mess that we have that's hard to understand and hard to pay for and all (laughs) of that. But I haven't talked so much about wages, which I think is a good idea and I will do that. Um yeah, so no, I mean, I, I would I would also, trust
1: I would trust Michael Cannon on this 100%. But yeah, I think that is <laughs> another avenue to explore.
0: <laughs> um I think Something else, and this might apply to healthcare, care, um, but it definitely applies to education, is a lot of salaries in higher ed actually aren't even going to professors so much as they're going to administrators. I think at Yale, they have like six to one administrators to students or like some or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. There is like an absurd amount of administrators that I can guarantee you probably don't need. Yeah. Um, and so... I'm sure we probably see that sort of stuff everywhere. And so figuring out how to deal with this like private administrative bloat, especially if the number of students, consumers drops, um, that would be key. No, absolutely. Um, And
1: I think, you know, to the extent some of those administrators are there to comply with, say, federal laws, you know, that's something where public policy could address it. You know, do we really need them, all these administrators to comply with all these federal laws? Maybe some of you do, maybe some of you don't. But I think a lot of it is just, you know, private, you know, growth you know when you've had the good years in, in higher ed it's naturally you to you'll spend the money on something and you spend it on perhaps more you know not that everyone has to be a professor at the university we need support staff but you know you spend more money on non-professor salaries um and i think there will be though over the next 15 years this kind of natural process where where schools are going to have to reduce that um uh because that'll be the reality of you know do we you know, you can't really sell back a dorm, right? If you built the dorm already, it's a capital investment. But, you know, do we cut a professor's job or do we get cut administrators? I think if you want to continue to have a college that delivers education, in most cases, you're going to have to say we're going to cut the administrator. And so there will be, I think, somewhat of a natural process uh, as colleges deal with this shrinking enrollment problem.
0: So not to bring it back to this women thing, but to <laughs> totally do that, because Not only does it really concern me and my future, but also, I mean, I I don't know the exact percentage, but like 50% of the population, I feel like I can safely say
1: around. (laughs) A little more, Uh, I think. Yeah, a little more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, especially if you think about colleges, the percentage of women to men is like there are more women than men in colleges compared to in America.
1: Right. Um, And that's been true for, that's been true for over 40 years, right? I think people, this is not like a new thing that happened just last week, right? It's been true for over 40 years that more women than men have been going to and graduating from college.
0: Yeah. So I, so when I was watching this event at AEI with Scott Winship and Orrin Cass, um, they were talking about these measurement issues and Scott said something that I, have been thinking about and that I'm still a little confused about, which is that if Cass is correct, then the only way to reduce kati is to reduce the number of dual income families. What does that mean? Why is that the case?
1: Right. So, and Scott is my co-author on this paper, but I still don't want to put words in his mouth, but let me tell you what I think he, he meant by that. Cause we've talked about this point is, is part of what's going on, right. With people buying bigger houses and such and people, you know, being more likely to send their kids to a nice college and so part of the cost pressure on those things is a demand side pressure we've talked about the supply side pressures with housing right those are the zoning restrictions but the demand side is more people wanting to buy it as there are more dual income families and as the dual income families have higher incomes they're going to spend that on something their demand is one thing that's driving up the cost of housing right it's not just a supply side issue so what Scott is saying with that with that line that you're you're remembering is that, well, you know, if we say, you know, banned women from working or at least we we strongly discourage it. Right. So there were fewer dual income families. Well, that would effectively reduce the demand for, for things like housing and education and so on. Uh, so and Scott is not at all suggesting this. He is he's saying this seems like an implication <laughs> of the paper is that, OK, there's more dual income families. Women are earning more that puts more pressure on prices upwards uh, because of the demand side. Uh, if you were to cut that back, well, you could reduce some of these prices and it might be easier for a male by himself to support the household. Uh, but that's not a world that I think anyone wants. And it's and got kind of says it in jest because he knows that's not the world Warren wants. He does not, neither of them want that, but that seems to be a kind of logical implication. Part of what's going on with things getting more expensive is, well, people have more incomes, right? I mean, if you are, You know, doubling the number of women in the workforce, which kind of roughly happened over, I don't know exactly what time period, but, you know, over a 50 or 60-year time period, you've doubled the number of women in the workforce as a proportion of the workforce. Well, that's going to mean all that extra income has got to go somewhere. and As it goes somewhere, those, the price of things that they buy is going to go up. Uh, You could reduce that by, you know, uh, reducing the number of women that are working, but i think that would i think we we all recognize that there's really there's really no good way to do that and also even if you could it would it's a dumb idea so uh, I, I think if that maybe clears up what he was saying there
0: yeah do you think that these this this narrative or these ideas do you think that that's something that i should be genuinely concerned about and just women generally even men i think that it it presents kind of this new Change which is interesting because it's coming from conservatives, I don't know,
1: yeah, is it something
0: to be concerned about? you know i th-
1: I think of course it is I think these these issues are always important to think about um, you know to maybe give another you know example it seems a little off off topic, but I think it's very similar if you think about immigration either into the country or into a city, right new immigrants into a city are going to push up the price of housing as they increase demand, right uh, we could say that well we can keep housing prices down. By keeping out immigrants uh, but there are all these other benefits we're ignoring right there's lots of other benefits of immigration it has this one effect on housing right uh and it but it has all these other benefits for us right uh, including benefits that will increase our our actual real earnings even though housing is more expensive so i think it's it, to me it's it's kind of a similar argument here with with you know that winship was making about women is that yes as more women are working and earn money that pushes the prices, but there are all these other benefits of women working, uh, socially, economically, uh, that we, we just cannot ignore those. And so I think I think you are right to to think about this and be concerned about it. But and I think it's an argument that needs to be made, right? I think a lot of people do think that, well, one income, the male income, should be able to support a family. If a family wants to have a, a woman working, that's great. And she should be totally socially and legally allowed to do that but that should all be like extra income right that will like spend on fun things right and i think that some people think that that's how a family's income dynamic should work but um i mean i i don't personally think that that's the way you should think about it i think that you know first of all working is about much more than just earning an income it's uh, it's the work itself is in many ways fulfilling not for everyone every hour of every day at your job it's not always fulfilling but uh i think it, in large part people gravitate towards jobs that they find to be fulfilling. Not everyone, especially people from uh, lower income and other ways disadvantaged backgrounds might work jobs that they actually hate their whole life. But many of us increasingly in the world today are, are working at jobs that, that are beneficial for us and for our families in ways beyond just the, the economic part of it. Um, so I think, you know, but I think you are right to, to think about how they, these things interact with the, the gender dynamics of, of family income too.
0: And I do think you point out a funny irony that that it's, it's, it's often the left and the right more than, well, I guess that's like a lot of the percentage of people, but um, that talk about how work should be dignified and you should find purpose in your work. And yet there's this where work is not being treated as that, but instead a way to pay for life. Right. Um, I think that's an interesting tension that this brings up. Yeah. And also, I'm not all that worried because here you and Scott Winship are correcting the record and <laughs> fighting for economic flourishing. Um thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and for sharing your wisdom. Um I have one last question for you. What Great. is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why?
1: So I used to think in my, my younger days of being interested in politics and economics, I used to think that you could convince people that you're right just based on some sort of kind of intellectual argument. So, for example, you know, you could convince people to, say, become a libertarian just by convincing them that, you know, you know, taxation is theft and you know, it's basically the same thing as theft. So, you know. Uh, we should that are, therefore it's immoral because we agree that theft is immoral and therefore we should have much lower taxes and that you could like convince people of this through an argument like that I've over time uh, through my own experience and observing others become increasingly convinced that th- that is not going to convince people especially adults who are not already on board with your ideology and I use libertarian because I'm you know a libertarian of sorts but whatever your ideology is I think convincing people that you are morally right about something is extremely difficult to do. People come to their moral beliefs through a variety of channels, but they essentially get solidified at one point. They're really hard to change. So what I've kind of shifted to, and this paper is an example of that, is trying to convince people based on evidence, right? Trying to convince, if you want to convince people of a particular position, you know, make an empirical case for it. An empirical doesn't have to always mean numbers, doesn't have to mean regressions always, but it can. Uh, But, you know, trying to convince people of that you know, not challenging. I think this is why it's so hard. Right. If you tell someone that their moral understanding of the world about you know their moral understanding of how humans should interact, of what government should do, if you tell them that's wrong, they just have like a, like a reaction to it where they're just going to shut down. Right. But if you try to tell them that, well, I'm not going to question your your beliefs about the world, but I am going to try to convince you that on this particular point, you have the data wrong. And and the data is actually driving your belief about this. It's not that you're wrong about the world. It's not that your morals are wrong. Um, it's that you you just you have a misunderstanding of the data. Let me try to show it to you. Let me try to explain to you why I think I have a better understanding of the data. This does not always convince someone, right? <laughs> we have not yet convinced Orncast to to come to our view on this. But I think, you know, reasonable people, and and he's a reasonable person, reasonable people will change their views on particular parts of it. So on just on this example, right, I mentioned that on not including the cost of taxes, he he admits I was I was wrong to exclude that. Thank you for pointing that out. And that does that is important. Right. So I think I, I have increasingly in my life tried to to you know to the extent I argue with people, right, or discuss with people. I, I just I really never focus on, you know, the kind of what we might call the consequentialist or a rights-based argument, even though I think all that is very important. And I think it's great that we have political philosophers, some of my good friends working on this. Uh, I think that is really hard to convince people about, but people will be convinced in some cases by data.
0: Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight. I'd also like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. It means a lot. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at libertyfund.org. Thank you.